Here's a message from today's episode sponsor. Pharmacy is transforming, and this transformation is having a major impact on patient care and patient treatment outcomes. Pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare providers throughout the country, and we are taking on more responsibilities as our roles continue to expand. Pharma Salon and the Pharmacy Podcast Network are hosting the first RX Influencer Salon, all about trends and opportunities in healthcare led by pharmacists. The RX Influencer Salon will be a live event taking place in St. Louis on October 24th and 25th. This event will feature four key conference tasks, including compounding, business growth and alternative revenue streams, cannabis, and pharmacogenomics. Led by pharmacists, this salon offers you the opportunity to learn through conversation. You will have the opportunity to learn strategies to help you build your business, excel in your career, and expand your knowledge of the upcoming opportunities in healthcare in a way no other conference provides. Sign up today by visiting pharmasalon.com forward slash rx influencer. That's pharmasalon.com forward slash rx influencer. Pharmacists today are some of the most influential providers in healthcare. So sign up today and join us in St. Louis at the Rx Influencer Salon. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. We believe pharmacists are the best positioned providers to lead in PGX. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs. This relatively new field combines pharmacology and genomics to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a person's genetic makeup. This podcast is dedicated to pharmacists with an interest in learning more about the data analytics, industry trends, and evidence-based usage of pharmacogenomics. Welcome to PGX for Pharmacists, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to uh, the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We collect some of the most intelligent people in our healthcare system led by pharmacists. Dr. Becky Winslow is a key provider of intelligence and understanding of pharmacogenomics and the impact PGX will have on our healthcare uh, outcomes and uh, becoming a tool uh, for our pharmacists. Um, Becky, I would love you to introduce uh, Anna and David to us and then um, take it away with today's discussion. And like I said, if anyone has any questions, um, please put them in the chat and we'll definitely get to them. And I'll be standing off uh, fly on the wall, but I'll help out uh, anytime if anybody needs it. Thanks, Todd. Um, thanks for that great introduction. We're happy to be with you guys today. Very excited about today's topic that is absolutely critical to pharmacists being stakeholders in pharmacogenomics as they should be. Uh, you guys know me. I'm one of the hosts of the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. And like Todd said, we were uh, ranked as the ninth most listened to genetics podcast in the world last year. Um, 
you know, we're here to educate you guys and give you research-based evidence um, to work with. So I'm extremely pleased to introduce to our audience today, I'm going to start with Dr. Anna Langerville. Um, she is the founder and president of Gene Markers, which is a contract research organization and a CLIA CAP certified testing laboratory that specializes in genomics. Uh, she received her BA in psychology from SUNY Binghamton. <laughs> I might have made that very Southern. Um, and her PhD from the interdisciplinary program in neurosciences at Tulane University. Uh, after receiving her PhD, Anna moved to Kalamazoo, where she served as a research assistant professor at Western Michigan University for six years. And then in 2008, she founded Gene Markers. And under her leadership, the company was recognized as one of the top 50 Michigan companies to watch. Um, Anna currently also serves as an adjunct professor and an advisory board member for Manchester University Pharmacogenomics Program. And she also holds a community faculty position at the Western Michigan University Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. Our other guest today we're very excited about is Dr. David Bright. He's a professor of pharmacy at Ferris State University. He received his PharmD degree from the University of Toledo and subsequently completed a community pharmacy residency with Kroger Pharmacy and the University of Toledo. After five years on the faculty at the Ohio Northern University and serving as a community pharmacy residency program director, he came to Ferris in 2014, where he has since taught in areas of therapeutics and medication therapy management. His research has primarily involved the pragmatic implementation and improvement of non-dispensing pharmacy services, particularly in the outpatient setting. And most recently, that has involved the integration of pharmacogenomics into clinical practice for both community pharmacy and ambulatory care practice models. So you can see from those introductions that our guests today are very well knowledge, um, very well educated on what we're gonna be talking about today. So I just wanna go ahead and dive right in uh, to this research so that we can make sure we cover everything that you guys have been waiting to learn about. David, we'll start with you. Um, we're going to dive into the paper. The paper's title is uh, Pharmacist Consult Report to Support Pharmacogenomic Report Interpretation. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about the project and what brought about the idea? Yeah, thank you very much for having us today. Um, I thought maybe to, to jump into this, maybe the idea behind it before kind of summarizing the study itself, but the experience that, that um, I keep hearing just as I get to have this uh, role as an educator and see that intersection with pharmacogenomics, people bring stories to me and, and I hear things like, oh yeah, a uh, patient came into my pharmacy and they came in and they dropped on the table their pharmacogenomics report and they said, what do I do with this? Or a patient walks into the doc's office and they do the same thing. They hand the report to the doc and the doc says, what am I supposed to do with this? And we hear those, those, uh, to stories of pharmacogenomics getting out there into the world. And now we're seeing kind of the real world implementation issues with that, where the, the report is getting out there and people need to interpret that report, do something useful with that report so that the data isn't wasted, but the data can go to, to help patients. Yeah. 
right? And that's yeah. why we're we're here as pharmacists. So that that was kind of the origin of some of these research questions around like, well, can a pharmacist take a report and further personalize that for a given patient with their medication list, with their renal function, with their allergies, everything else that's going on? How can a pharmacist step in and help? Absolutely. Anna, did you have a similar experience from the lab side? I did have a similar experience. And I'll say, you know, we launched as a company, we launched pharmacogenomic testing in 2014. And, you know, in readying, getting ready to, to offer this test, you know, it seemed really like something that would have great value to, you know, doctors and their patients. And, you know, we thought it would be, you know, like an easy, you know, just an easy implementation. And what we found was, you know, a lot of, a lot of challenges from, you know, providers that, you know, just like David had said, what am I supposed to do with all of this information? So, you know, that was an early learning experience for us back in 2014. And what we did actually to, you know, try to try to solve some of that problem was early on, we started partnering with um, a local community pharmacy here in Michigan to, you know, to provide, you know, what we'll talk about today in more detail, the pharmacy consults. And we built out our um, limb system to accommodate that and make an easy, you know, and simple workflow to, you know, transfer data and reports. But, you know, that is, you know, an ongoing challenge with the implementation of PGX is, you know, providing doctors with information that, you know, is potentially a little intimidating. Absolutely. I mean, I have had the same experience. I've been in the industry for over eight years. And honestly, my first job in pharmacogenomics was being that liaison between the lab and the physician because the physician had a stack of reports in his office and wasn't sure what to do with them. So I was able to fill that gap. So I love what you guys are doing. I love that you have included pharmacists in your model um, and not just included pharmacists in your model, but you've conducted research to show the value of what pharmacists are adding to the model. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So um, you're right. You guys are right. The complexity of PGX is daunting to other professions sometimes, um, but it, it's very straightforward to pharmacists. Um, to us, it's second nature. It's, it's just another laboratory test for us because we are accustomed to using laboratory tests to manage uh, medications. Um, but then putting together the pharmacist console is not as common. And so how did the workflow look for data interpretation and clinical recommendations in your um, research? So I guess I'll start off as I'm as we as we mentioned, you know, my lab does um, pharmacogenomic testing. So we receive the test um, samples, we process those samples and generated the test report. And the test report, um, you know, is includes each test report includes red, yellow, and green flags on each of the medications. Um, that have PGX guidance and the red, yellow, and green flags correspond to that patient's um, genotype. Um, you know, whether or not they are, you know, can take that medication as prescribed or it, it, with being a, you know, a green flag, yellow would mean that, you know, take, you know, proceed with caution, again, related to genetics 
and red means that there's some incompatibility with taking that medication and that patient's genetics. So that the reports have that type of annotation and also an additional layer of information telling the, um, the end user whether um, how much clinical evidence is there to support that drug gene um, relationship. And each of those medications is also annotated with the, the term either actionable or informative. And that's based on CPIC guidance and um, FDA guidance on whether or not the, the, the data supports actionable or informative um, you know, implementation. Mm -hmm. So we generated these reports and we um, uploaded them into, uh, they, they were automatically uploaded into our LIMB system and shared um, electronically with the, um, with, the farm, with the consulting pharmacists. And I, I briefly mentioned that our LIMB system was built to support this type of workflow. So, you know, we can we can basically click a button and say, you know, for add to each test that comes in, whether or not we want to, you know, al um, assign that test to a consulting pharmacist. And in this case, we can uh, we could we can assign we assigned the test to um, three consulting pharmacists, and they were able to, you know, pull or access the report and review that. And I'll let David take it away from here and what they what they did with that. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, one thing that probably separates this a little bit from real life, and as you mentioned, that oftentimes the report goes to a pharmacist. The pharmacist makes a recommendation, and you kind of go from there. And because this was a study, we wanted to buffer that a little bit by going to multiple pharmacists to make sure that there was agreement that we're reducing the risk of bias of, of a pharmacist looking at something one way or, or those kind of things. So the report came to three pharmacists that looked at that. And so we, we look at the patient's medications, we look at their health conditions, and we look at their genetics. And we try to put that all together and come up with recommendations that are contextualized then to that patient. Um, one of the things that, that I just kind of see as I talk with patients and pharmacists and other healthcare professionals that are out there is they see this red on the report. And I think that we're so conditioned from every other pop-up alert that we get in every other interface that like red is like, no, no, scary, like don't touch. Right. And so, um, but then there's often times in this instance where a medication on a red list that flags red may still be the best for a patient we may just need to dose adjust, or it may, you know, there may be other things that are going on. So you have to, uh, with, with that context that, that again, I think that pharmacists naturally grasp very quickly, just in my observation of, of working with pharmacists over the years, naturally grasp that very quickly. And so, um, with those kind of concepts in mind, with those, uh, data points in mind, that team of pharmacists then put together clinical recommendations that were specific to that patient. Again, maybe not as practical in the day-to-day -day by going to a team of pharmacists, um, right. but I think in, in real life, when this isn't in a, in a study format, that one pharmacist can make that same recommendation. Sure, sure, yes. Um, so Anna, once the report went back into the limb system, um, what happened after that point? So what happens is the pharmacy consult report gets merged with the original PGX test report and together they are um, transmitted to the ordering provider through our secure system. Excellent. 
excellent, yes. Um, I mean, just to add a, a footnote, I've been um, in situations where the physician had the report, the original report, and they had a clinical decision support, but they still wanted the pharmacist opinion. So that's great that you guys are providing that. So um, the big question is, so that the pharmacist can show their value, David, is what did you identify in the consult reports? What, what type of um, interventions uh, did you guys have the opportunity to make? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that was really interesting to me is that a lot of the reports that came back showed that there were flags, which I think if you've seen a pharmacogenomics report and you've you've worked with patients that are on a lot of meds, like something, like it's not uncommon for something to flag, right? And that's what we saw is that a, a majority of patients had some sort of flag and pharmacists uh, took those, particularly the actionable flags, about 50% of the actionable flags ended up being things that a pharmacist did recommend, um, but much less closer to one out of nine of the informative flags pharmacists recommended in this instance. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that generated next steps for taking that longer list of flags and narrowing it down to things that are more clinically relevant to that specific patient. Sure, absolutely. Um, because, and that is important um, that we differentiate between actionable and informative information. And because of the pharmacist's knowledge of the patient and the other uh, non genetic factors uh, for that patient, then they can um, blend the information together to decide which of those actionable and informative flags uh, are critical to that, to that patient. So that's awesome. So, David, if only uh, 20 to 30 percent of flags on the report had immediate value, do you think we're wasting our time with genetics testing or is the information still vital? I, I think that's a great question. I, I think I can definitely understand where that would be a hesitation, but I, I think there's a lot of laboratory testing that we do in the healthcare space that's kind of confirmatory in nature. You know, mm -hmm. we might check a patient's kidney function to make sure that a renally eliminated medication is safe and appropriately dosed for that patient. So checking genetics and ensuring that we would expect a normal response doesn't sound like necessarily a bad thing. Um, I had my own genetic testing done a while back. And, and at first I was thinking, oh, this is going to be exciting. Like something might light up and it might, you know, but, um, you know, several of the key enzymes, I'm a normal metabolizer. And, and so I, I thought about that for a minute. I'm like, well, that's actually kind of nice. That means I can take medications and expect a normal response. So I don't feel like uh, that's necessarily a waste. And I think that we would see that in a lot of the clinical pop-ups, the clinical decision support, the flags that happen in a lot of different interfaces. A lot of times those are, as we think about it clinically and we consider that for the patient, we're able to dismiss that flag. And that's a good thing. But for the, for the proportion of time when that uh, comes back and it is clinically actionable, it really makes sense to, to have those there. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, I mean, you're right. Like we will get a creatinine clearance for a patient and we're happy when it's normal. Right. So it's similar for PGX finding out that they have what we consider normal um, genetic variants. That's a great thing. Um, so I absolutely agree with you. And Anna, I think you were going to touch on the psychological benefit um, as far as medication compliance and adherence 
um, you know, helping patients to feel more confident in their drug therapy, knowing that the drug therapy should work for them, that it uh, will be less likely to cause adverse drug events. There's a big psychological benefit to that. Absolutely. And, you know, over the years, we've heard feedback from a lot of our providers that, you know, they, they're they happy when there is, you know, a, a report that comes back with a lot of green checks. And, you know, they have communicated to us that that helps them have the discussion with their patients and, you know, and let them know that this medication should work for you just fine. And, you know, it helps in, you know, um, boosting the confidence of the patient that, you know, they're not going to have adverse uh, drug responses and, you know, potentially will help them take the medication as prescribed, which, as we all know, is, you know, a major challenge. Yes, it is. Um, medication non-adherence, um, you know, quite often we attribute it to non-genetic factors. I don't think that pharmacogenetic factors are considered uh, as they should be for um, medication non-adherence and medication non-compliance. Um, and really, it is a big contributing factor that we need to consider. Um, uh, you know, some of the tools we have now in pharmacies are, does the patient pick up their prescription? And we, we attribute that to adhering to the medication. But just because the patient picked up the medication doesn't mean that they actually consume the medication. Um, once they got home, um, they were having an adverse event or they didn't feel the medication was working for them you know, maybe they stop taking that medication. So um, we can work on medication compliance and adherence long before that patient gets to the pharmacy to pick up a medication. All righty. So David, um, about mm, three quarters of flags were effectively ignored. I think this is important. We need to bring up the fact that um, we may have flags that we do ignore at the time. Um, you know, is this a problem with PGX testing? Is this a reason for us to worry about PGX testing? Um, you know, what did you guys find in your in your study? Yeah, I I don't know that it's necessarily a problem. And and kind of my favorite example for this concept is like if you have a patient that is taking warfarin. And the pharmacogenomic sort of flag. I think that's a that's a common example for pharmacogenomics is consider warfarin and finding a starting dose. So if you have a patient that's just starting out on warfarin and you have pharmacogenomic information and it flags, that may give a lot of guidance to that starting dose to help get someone to a goal INR faster. Mm -hmm. If you have someone that's been on warfarin for five years, their INR is 2.4, you're happy, like everything's going well, and then the report flags, that sounds like a flag that you may be able to dismiss and move on because you have the objective laboratory evidence that the medication has been dosed appropriately. And then in hindsight, you may be able to see like, oh, well, that's why one and a half milligrams of warfarin got him to goal. You know, you may be able to see why in hindsight, but uh, it doesn't mean that we need to take action based on that flag at the point in time. So, and that's just where the kind of the greater clinical context of the patient their drugs, their disease states, everything else they have going on, laboratory data, you can make a much more clear clinical recommendation than, than the, the report can inherently give. And that's that's not trying to um, you know, say that the report's not useful or anything like that. That's just there's limited data that filters into that clinical decision support. And a, a clinician can add more 
facts to that puzzle. Absolutely. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, physicians with a test report in their hand and a clinical decision support tool, you know, still relied on me to give them my opinion. So absolutely. And Anna, I think that uh, you can elaborate on the value of, of the pharmacist role. Um, you want to take a turn on that one? <laughs> I would be happy to take a turn on this question, Becky. As a lab, we only have the patient's genetic data and occasionally a medication list that may or may not be complete or up to date. And we typically receive very limited clinical information, if any. But it's not just that we have limited clinical information. As a lab, our job is to provide genetic um, data, not medical, not medical recommendations. As we've already talked about, PGX data is not a standalone solution, but a tool that should be used in tandem with other clinical data to guide medication management. And this is where the role of the pharmacist really shines. Clinical pharmacists with experience in PGX are positioned to make a significant impact on prescribing and the patient's overall health. And our model has been to partner with clinical pharmacists and healthcare providers to maximize the benefits of PGX testing. Absolutely. Now, I'll just add to that. Um, you know, in today's healthcare industry, uh, smart labs need to look beyond what, you know, you're exactly right. You're a lab, you produce lab tests. But having that relationship with a clinician who can assist uh, the clinicians that utilize your products, that is gold. Um, absolutely gold. And the pharmacist is perfect for pharmacogenomics. Um, just, you know, adding that personal touch um, in addition to the data which you provide. Absolutely. So, uh, David, anything that the report didn't find when you were doing your research? Yeah, I think another example that I might give for something the report doesn't find is when there's a, a missing medication or a duplicative medication. And I think that as pharmacists, we're trained to look for those. We look at a, a, a list of health conditions and we look at a list of medications and we automatically start trying to connect those dots, right? And so when there's a health condition and no associated medication, we can come in, we can make a recommendation. And in the instance where that recommendation may be pharmacogenomically guided, then even better, we've got the report right there and we can we can make a, a pharmacogenomically informed clinical recommendation. Uh, and that would be something that wouldn't be in the report because it's not tied to a specific medication. Again, not a flaw in the report, it's just a process consideration of once you have that pharmacogenomic data on file and in front of you, you can use that to filter future clinical decisions down the line. Absolutely. That is a wonderful point to bring up is the drug therapy problem of a uh, condition with no medication on board and the usefulness of that PGX report. Anna, do you want to expand on that? I think the only thing I can add here, you know, from observation, it appears that, you know, having a PGX test done with a pharmacy consult, you know, really insert the PGX test um, report serves as a really like a vehicle for the pharmacist to then go in and look at, you know, the entire um, suite of medications and lack of medications potentially that, you know, may be related to this patient's medical conditions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So 
having uh, multiple therapeutic areas on a test report is very beneficial uh, for future reference. Uh, should the patient need a medication from one of those therapeutic areas, the test is already done. And here's a selection that's most likely to work and, and less likely to cause adverse drug events. Absolutely. So we discussed a little bit earlier that, uh, you know, one of the differences between your research study and real world um, is that you had three pharmacists reviewing the uh, test report and making recommendations to make sure that they weren't biased. Um, was there anything else that you guys realized that was different maybe from real world experience or anything else you want to expand on with one pharmacist versus three? I think you're right. The, the, one of the major differences was that we had three pharmacists looking at this report versus, you know, a single pharmacist that would, that would you know, typically review um, a PGX report in real world. Uh, I think the biggest differences related to, you know, performing a study and translating that into practice come um, or, or related to a lot of the, the real challenges of implementing PGX in general. So sure. right now, pharmacists are not able to order reports or, or tests. So, you know, that, that's one, one of the major hurdles. Um, not only can they not order tests, but if they're serving as an interface, they may not have all of the clinical notes and information necessary to really provide what we just talked about, you know, a comprehensive, you know, um, pharmacy consult, um, especially because that information is transmitted to the pharmacists through the lab. So, you know, just that communication between ordering provider, the pharmacist and, and the lab is, you know, not as complete and comprehensive as it, um, in the real world as it was in this study where we had buy-in from, you know, the providers to participate in this process. And then I think the last, the last piece or, or challenge or difference relates really to billing and reimbursement. So, you know, that's another difference in the study. Things were paid for and we really didn't have to worry about medical necessity and who is going to pay for the pharmacy consult. So you know, those are probably the biggest, the biggest differences and some of the barriers in, you know, creating a seamless workflow for integrating pharmacists into this process. Absolutely. Some of those barriers you named are very critical to pharmacists being stakeholders in this process. David, did you want to elaborate on that? Um, I, I think maybe one other thing to add is that we found that it just logistically, it was kind of nice that these came over in batches and we were able to get through them as a series because it's kind of one of those things you get in your mind in that gear and you start moving faster. So just thinking through some of those implementation issues, a lot of times as pharmacists, we get these kind of one-off clinical questions all day long. And so you just have to field those on the fly. Um, and so not to say that, that that couldn't happen, but it was just a fascinating difference to think through uh, how this all happened as a batch in a block of time versus those kind of one-offs and, and uh, you know, giving more question to as this, as we see further implementation, how could some of those models be reproduced to make sure that this can be done as efficiently as possible as well? Absolutely. Um, you know, because our ultimate goal is to scale this to population health. 
right? Um, it's great to have one patient, one test, but we ultimately want this to be a population health tool um, so that more people can benefit from it. So I absolutely understand what you're saying. Um, so, you know, and the billing, <laughs> you know, this is, this is a, a major uh, deal. Pharmacists are very motivated to help patients. They're very motivated to help manage those medication therapy uh, management consults. Um, payers, besides cash payers, don't recognize pharmacists as providers to order tests unless they're in a collaborative practice agreement with a physician, unfortunately. So absolutely right. Um, you know, the billing for the test if a pharmacist were to order it, and also who pays the pharmacist for their time? Who pays the pharmacist for their cognitive services? Because that costs money, it's, it's, it costs time. So absolutely, these are, are still uh, questions that need to be answered. And I'm very excited uh, that you guys are still uh, proceeding to research these issues and, and identify how pharmacists participate in this process and assigning a value to it so that we can prove to payers that the pharmacist's uh, contribution to pharmacogenomics is uh, valuable. So this is a big question. <laughs> what do you guys expect to see for pharmacist involvement in PGX coming in the future? Um, this is pretty wide open. There's so many opportunities. What do you guys see? Well, I'll jump in with, I'm hoping that this becomes just a really routine part of care. And it, it feels like there's this intimidation factor around pharmacogenomics, like people hear a six syllable pharma word and they get all twitchy and panicky, you know? Um, but I'm hopeful that as, as this becomes more normal and more typical, that it's just one more lab result that's in the chart, one more uh, pop-up that you see that you're you're filtering your clinical decisions through, and that it just becomes a routine part of care. Um, I, I certainly understand where we're at now where you have to apply this to a patient because the data comes in when the patient already has 10 or 12 meds. But right. as from an along the way standpoint, I'm hopeful that that just becomes a, a much more routine thing that everybody in the healthcare team gets a lot more comfortable with, familiar with, and, and applies to care consistently. Absolutely. And research that you guys are doing is going to help. It's going to help make that happen um, so that it does become routine. Anna, how about you from the laboratory perspective? I think from a laboratory perspective, what we're seeing and what we've seen over the last, you know, six months or a year is a lot of interest from pharmacists in wanting to partner with the lab and, you know, participate in, you know, reviewing and consulting for PGX testing. Uh, you know, I think maybe some of that came out of, you know, COVID, where the role of pharmacists became expanded and providing tests and you know, we had a lot of relationships with pharmacy, local pharmacies um, yeah. throughout COVID. So I think, you know, wanting to look at, you know, what other types of services can they, can they offer? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Is, I think COVID was definitely a, it opened the door and it, it showed what pharmacists are, can do and, and that they're valuable. Um, David, you know, as well as I do, in the earlier days of uh, hospitals with pharmacokinetic services, pharmacists had to become specialists in pharmacokinetics. Um, so, you know, 
I think we'll see pharmacist participation in the healthcare team for pharmacogenomics increase also. Um, absolutely. So, uh, Anna, do you get do you get any other questions from pharmacists that we might be able to answer? Um, I mean, I myself let pharmacists know on social media that all labs are not created equal. All labs are not pro-pharmacists. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, you guys are very pro-pharmacist. Um, you know, do you ever get any questions about how to do the consulting or where can I get training or? We do. We do. And like I mentioned, you know, um, early on, you know, right after we launched this testing, we recognized right away that pharmacists were, you know, a key, key part of this process and, you know, rec recognized that it would be most beneficial to the patient and the doctor to include a pharmacist in this care team to, you know, help interpret this information. Um, we do get a lot of questions from pharmacists on, you know, how do I get started? How do, you know, how, how do I make this work in my pharmacy? And, you know, where do I get training? You know, like while, while they're, this has been around for a long time, you know, some, some pharmacists have not had formal pharmacogenomics. And over the last couple of years, there have been more and more, you know, training programs and degree programs geared towards pharmacogenomics and specifically programs and certificate programs that are, are geared towards um, active, you know, active pharmacists that are um, working and can add this to their um, education and, and, and training. So there are a couple that we, we recommend. Um, there's one through ASHP and there's um, two, another one from Rx Genomics and another one through the Test to Learn program. So those are some that we've utilized. And, you know, of course, I have to mention that Manchester University yes. has a pharmacogenomics master's program and a dual degree uh, program for pharm PharmD and uh, master's in pharmacogenomics. And, you know, both of those um, programs are excellent and provide a really um, comprehensive overview of pharmacogenomics and that someone can take and then implement into regular routine clinical practice. I agree. I think it's important to mention that you guys have a graduate from Manchester University, uh, master's in pharmacogenomics. We have two. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, you guys have got top people uh, working with you uh, that have the training. Absolutely. So um, is there anything else that you think is important from the study to share with the audience? Maybe, you know, what was the patient engagement like? What was provider engagement like? Uh, we've talked a lot about what the pharmacist did. How did, how did the patients and providers receive this? I guess I can jump in and start out, you know, because my team was, you know, front and center or on the front lines with the providers and the patients. And, you know, initially we were a little bit concerned on, you know, were we going to be able to recruit patients um, into this study and how easy would it be to get provider um, sort of, you know, input to, to do this. Um, and one of the things that we didn't really talk about in this podcast yet is the patients that we looked at or had recruited into this study were patients who were um, uh, getting treatment for opiate use disorder or um, chronic pain treatment. 
So we were a little bit concerned on, you know, how willing were these patients going to be to, you know, participate in, in, in this type of work. And what sure. we found was, you know, from both, both the providers and the patients, they were extremely engaged and interested to, you know, to learn about their genetics and how it related to the medications that they were taking. So, um, you know, we, we were pleasantly surprised and, you know, through this research actually developed some, you know, ongoing um, positive relationships with the providers who participated in the study. That's awesome. Um, those relationships are priceless, especially in the pharmacogenomics industry where some uh, maybe pharma, uh, providers have had negative experiences um, in the past. It's critical to have that that great relationship with them so that they know they can trust you. David, you know, just what did you see with the pharmacist? Did their efficiency improve? Um, you know, I know when I did my first uh, consult, it probably took me an hour or more because I was like, oh, did I look at this? Did I look at that? Did I forget this? What about this? <laughs> How did you guys uh, improve in efficiency during the study? Oh, yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And I know, Becky, you and I both have drugstore roots. And I think, you know, our yeah. first day checking a script in the drugstore, I'm like sweating and like it takes yeah. me forever, you know, because you just have stress of doing something the first time, right? Especially when it, it has some, you know, intimidation factor to it. But as you do more and more, the end of my first day, I was better. The end of my first week, I was better. The end of my first month, I was better. And I think we saw the same kind of thing with with pharmacogenomic consult reports. And so if there's if there's any encouragement to be offered here, I think that pharmacists that are listening listening that are, are scared of like, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't know about that. I think that one of the things that we found just kind of anecdotally is, is that as pharmacists do this more and more, you get more comfortable, just like anything else you do as a pharmacist. So I don't think this has to be a terribly intimidating task. Uh, I think it's something that you can definitely improve at over time, both in, in, in terms of just getting it done and then getting it done efficiently. Right. I absolutely agree. Um, you know, sometimes I chase the patient away from the cash register to look in that bag one more time. <laughs> when I first started out in retail pharmacy, by the time I left, I could do it in my sleep. It's similar, I mean, pharmacogenomics is the same. You know, pharmacists can do this. Uh, we can absolutely do this. And, and like I've mentioned several times, you guys have got the research to prove it. Alrighty, well, I believe at this time, we've got a few minutes left. We're gonna open the floor for questions from our audience. What I just wanted to say was that uh, it was 1987. Um, um, I had just arrived in this country and I saw um, uh, big tents outside the hospitals and outside uh, some um, uh, grocery store chains. Uh, they And I stopped by, I wanted to see what's going on and they were testing for cholesterol, uh -huh. free cholesterol testing. And uh, uh, I was a fresh graduate from school, pharmacy school, and I said, oh, cholesterol. They never taught us much about that. <laughs> and uh, uh, that was the year when Mebacor was discovered mm -hmm. or got approved. So, um, so there was a huge effort. Uh, you know, I didn't remember at that time, uh, you know, 20 years later uh, when I started looking at statins uh, and now they're you know, they should put those in water. 
um, we are to that point. Uh, so I'm just making a comment that I think there's a huge education piece uh, which needs to happen not only in patients, but also, also medical professionals, uh, including physicians and pharmacists. Uh, that piece is slightly missing. Um, there might be a master's program uh, in Manchester University, but uh, uh, you know, what does a regular person know about it? Right. Uh, so this uh, uh, one, two, three, where there's that company, I'm not sure what, what that is. Uh, you know, th there's some genetic testing uh, is, is there, but not for the reasons that, uh, you know, as pertaining to the medication uh, usage. And uh, so I think uh, uh, that piece would come where the patients then have to know that they can be treated better uh, mm -hmm. and then pair. So it's a long, long road, but uh, we, I see there are a lot of wins along the way already and uh, mm -hmm. uh, we, we are doing our best. But I think uh, suddenly this came to my mind, so I just wanted to share that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, as a partner with Gene Markers, um, we really appreciate your opinion. And you're absolutely correct. Uh, education is one of the major barriers for pharmacogenomics being implemented as a standard of care. Um, I'd say that in reimbursement. And, you know, pharmacists uh, don't even necessarily have to do PGX consults. They can educate. Um, you know, if you don't want to do a consult, you can educate other clinicians, educate other pharmacists. David, you know, you guys, you work at the pharmacist school. You know, you want to add anything to how pharmacists can be educators? Um, yeah, I think that we're we're seeing that in our in our evolving curricula, right? Like uh, we're seeing pharmacogenomics taught more, not only in kind of the basic science genetics side in the early curriculum, but also in the therapeutic space in the in the later parts of the curriculum. So we're seeing that integrated more and more from a teaching standpoint. But to your point, it it hasn't been that way for forever, right? Yeah. So there's there's plenty of practicing pharmacists out there that may not be as involved. In that space, and so I think that's a an opportunity to leverage some of our continuing education needs, whether it's it's continuing education programs that are out there, kind of shorter programs at meetings or written CE, or some of these certificates may be helpful as well for pharmacists that feel like they need a little bit of a boost, a little bit of a refresher, brush some cobwebs away from all the genetics training they got years ago, and and uh, to feel more comfortable and confident in that space to provide care. And that's not not unlike any other area of care. You know, if if you haven't practiced in oncology since school, you'd want to go back and refresh in oncology. So it's those same kind of things. As, but as this becomes more of a, a generalist pharmacist task, my yeah. prediction is that lots of pharmacists are going to be looking for some of those refresher pieces to, to improve confidence on pharmacogenomics. Mm -hmm. And I'll just point out that I think the clinical implementation side of pharmacogenomics um, we need to really work on educating others because uh, knowing the science is one thing, um, but then I found that my ability to help the end user implement it into their workflow, into their processes, so it wasn't disruptive 
that is very valuable because um, you can have the best test in the world and you can have reimbursement for that test. <laughs> but if the end user doesn't know where and how to implement it into their uh, work processes, um, then this test still doesn't get utilized uh, the way that we would like for it to get utilized. David and Anna, can you guys tell our listeners where they can reach you or um, how they might find you if they have more information. You want to go first, David? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so again, I teach at Ferris State. So David Bright, B-R-I-G-H-T at ferris.edu. All right. Anna, can you? Yeah, so um, it's easy to find. Uh, you can look Gene Markers up on the internet, genemarkersllc.com or my direct email is Anna, A-N-N-A, at genemarkersllc.com. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to hear about the research you've already done. We look forward to having you guys back to talk about your pending research. Um, so yes, thank you so much for your contributions and for putting pharmacists uh, in one of the top spots as stakeholders from pharmacogenomics. We thank you for having us, Becky. Thanks for your interest in PGX and for spending some time with us. Please share this podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts